listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinkraven. I think through Colossians, um, the, the purpose of this series is to teach us how to study the Bible, just verse by verse, line by line, walking right through the book. And so uh, we've, we've taken uh, Colossians as our example here. And last week we looked at how uh, we become new people. Uh, when Jesus comes into our lives and He fills us with His Holy Spirit, we become new people living by a new power for a new purpose. And uh, the first place that we notice this newness, um, I believe, or the, or the place that we notice it the most, should be in our homes. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is going to address here. In the rest of chapter 3, uh, we're going to be in chapter 3, verse 18, if you want to go there, through chapter 4, verse 1 today, and just walking through it. And so I've entitled this talk, New People Make New Homes. Our home life should look different than, than before we met Jesus. And Paul's going to be extremely straightforward and practical again. He's been kind of shooting from the hip the last couple of weeks, just nailing us with different things, and it's not going to change this week. It's going to be very practical. If you're a wife in here, there's something for you. If you're a husband in here, there's something for you. If you're a parent in here, there's something for you. If you're an employee, there's something for you. If you're an employer, there's something for you. So that should cover all of us. If you're children in here, that, there's something in here for you. Something in here for all of us today. And uh, so we're going to read the word and then dive into it and unpack it. Here we are in Colossians chapter, 18, or chapter 3, verse 18. The Apostle Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. Let me pray uh, as we dive in. Holy Spirit, you know how much I need you uh, today. Um, I know that my words will not make any difference or change, but your words are powerful and, and they cut through the issues of our hearts. And so I pray that you come and speak to each of us individually where we're at today on the issues that you're addressing here in Colossians. I pray that we would trust your word more, that we would bend our lives around your word and not the other way around. We love you today and we trust you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. From this passage we see, first of all, that the new home is centered around Jesus. Without Jesus, you can't possibly have a new home. You can't possibly have new power to create new people. And so Jesus is the key element in all these different areas. And Jesus needs to be number one, first and foremost, in your home. But then Paul gives us a little bit of a hierarchy here of importance. And I don't think that's by accident. He, he goes on from, um, first of all, uh, highlighting that Jesus should be central and first important. Talking about husbands and wives. And your relationship should be key before even your children. Child-centered homes are very common nowadays, but they're not biblical and they're not right. And if you have a child-centered home, you're going to have to make some serious adjustments. First has to be Jesus and then has to be your spouse. And your kids want it that way. Your kids want you to love your spouse first before you love them. 
We need to love our kids. We need to prioritize them and make them a big deal in our, in our lives and our families. But they shouldn't come before our marriage relationships. Then, of course, we have children, and children are a heritage from the Lord. They can become little idols in our homes if we let them and we put them before Jesus. Uh, but most often, the Bible talks about them as just gifts in our home. They're, they're a heritage. They're a blessing. And sometimes we fail to see them as that, and we put work before them. And work in this passage comes last. And we need to bend our lives around that model. How many of us oftentimes prioritize children as last and, and, and put them at the end of the list? So Paul gives us a little bit of a hierarchy here as we begin, and I don't think that's by accident. So now with kind of understanding a little bit of the hierarchy, let's dive into what he says first. And as if it isn't hot enough in here already, Paul starts off by saying something very unpopular. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Oh my, how offensive. How regressive. How uh, unpopular this is. I mean, Preaching on this passage in today's culture, and I, I realize I'm a little bit sensitive to it because I come out of a marriage and family therapy background, but saying these kinds of things is a little bit like putting yourself in a pinata on Cinco de Mayo. You're going to get whacked. Um, you say these kind of things in a therapy room, you're, you might as well wear a helmet because people are going to throw things at you. And so I've told the elders to watch for any tomatoes today uh, as I preach and, and to be aware of anybody. Uh, that would want to throw things at me. I'm going to try to do my best with this passage. Um, I realize how sensitive it is. I realize how countercultural it is. I'm not, I'm not just an idiot up here just saying things and not realizing um, the world that we live in. But I'm also asking you to do something today. I'm asking you to ask the Holy Spirit to say, will you help me to uh, take a fresh start, a new look at your word today? And will you help me to bend my life around your word um, instead of bending you uh, around what I think or what I believe or around my culture. I love what N.T. Wright says. He says, if we don't allow Scripture to challenge us at places where our culture is doing its best to squeeze us into a different pattern, then what use is it? I mean, really, what use is it? Obviously, Scripture is going to be different in every, or Scripture is going to be the same in every culture, and every culture is going to have different problems with Scripture. Some cultures have no problems with this passage, but they have problems with passages on forgiving your enemies. See, in the Western culture, we love that kind of stuff, but we hate passages like this. And so all I'm saying here is take a fresh start and a new look and realize that Scripture is going to offend you in your culture at times. It has to, or it probably isn't true. If it just bends around your culture all the time, then it probably isn't God's Word. Okay? Now, I'm also realizing today that I could be wrong about some things, and so I'm inviting you to take the text that I'm giving you and test them. I'm inviting you to take these home and pray over them and say, is this really what the Bible teaches? I want to be very biblical today. I want to do a nice job. And so I'm not going to assume that you understand any of this. Sixty years ago, uh, I could have just stood up and said, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Uh, we don't have slaves anymore, so thank you very much. Let's pray. This would have been a short sermon. But those aren't, the, those aren't the basic understandings today. And so I'm going to try to take a little bit of time and do a nice job here and try to give you the best biblical foundation that I can here. And you're welcome to disagree with me lovingly, uh, but we'll talk about it later if you have some questions, okay? Let's start with a brief history of men's and women's roles in the Bible, okay? And the first thing I want to point out is how men and women are equal in the Bible, okay? Um, First and foremost, they're equal in personhood and importance, And we see this in creation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Um, God created man and woman in his own image equally. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So right off the bat, we are equally created in the image of God and there is no possible higher image that we could be created in. Both of us. So this right away takes out any talk of inferiority or superiority. It takes out any talk of feminism or chauvinism because neither of those belong anywhere in Christianity. We're equal, created equally in God's image. All right, now you think of the Trinity and, and how this makes sense between husbands and wives. The Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are equal in personhood. They're equal in importance. They're equal in their deity and their Godhead. Okay? But they have differences, and we're going to see those in a minute. Now, secondly, both men and women are given equally the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This is prophesied in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 29. It's fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, verse 17 through 18. There's no distinction. The Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are poured out equally upon men and women. And we believe that here at Life Church that women are equally gifted as men. And men, we know that, right? We know we're not more gifted than these women. We know that we're not smarter or better than them. That's just ridiculous. We're not, we're not that um, dense that we would think that somehow we're, we're brighter than them or something like that. Okay, we're equally gifted by the Holy Spirit. And then number three, both men and women have equality in status among God's people. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 through 28. For all of you are, who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Uh, you probably don't have the next verse because I didn't give it to you, did I? Did you? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, Male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Some Jewish males during this time when Paul writes this letter would actually wake up and pray, God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. It was, it was looked down upon so much to be a woman. It was so denigrating to be a woman in that culture that Christianity actually elevates women to be equals with men. Okay? Christianity does a nice job. They bring them up. They, they take them out of their culture and they have a great deal to say about women's equality. And the Apostle Paul is often uh, said to be kind of a woman hater, kind of down on women, but he's actually here saying that, hey, they're equal in status in the church. In other words, there are no second-class citizens. Male, female, slayer, free, based on your job, your occupation, whatever you do, your gender, we're all the same in Christ. All right? We're equal. Now, the Bible also talks about how men and women are different in roles and delegated authority. Okay? It's usually where the tomatoes start flying. Now, there's strong correlations here to the Trinity, between uh, the relationship between the Trinity and the relationship between a husband and wife. You think about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We never doubt that they're equally God, that they're equally important. Um, and so, too, with a husband and wife. They're equal in personhood and importance, but the Trinity has different roles. And we see that. In creation, the Father leads by speaking forth the, the creative word. But we also see, places like John 1, that the Son is there, and so is the Holy Spirit. They're working in creation along with the Father and upholding all creation as well. Okay, so they're, they're equal, but they're different in their roles. The, whole, the, the Father has an authority position over the Son, and the Son lovingly submits to the Father's leadership and authority. The Father sends the Son to earth to die on the cross in our place for our sins. That shows His authority over the Son, but the Son doesn't buck that authority or fight it or say, why can't I be God the Father? Why can't I have position? Why do I have to go to earth and die on the cross? He lovingly submits to the Father and He comes willingly, lovingly for us to die in our place for our sins. The Father doesn't die on the cross, the Son does. 
The Holy Spirit doesn't die on the cross, the Son does. Now, the Holy Spirit lovingly submits to the Son, and the Son sends the Helper, sends the Holy Spirit to us to fill us. We are not filled with Jesus Christ, the Son. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. There's difference in their work, and yet they're all of one, God. They have different roles and different delegated authority. And this is similar to the relationship between the husband and the wife. I think this is best represented in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. And we'll go there for just a second. Where the Apostle Paul once again says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. Ladies, you need to realize this. You're not the only one with a head. And the head of you, first and foremost, is Christ, just like the head of every man is Christ. Okay? Your husband might be the, the lowercase h head, but Jesus is the capital H head. And the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Isn't this interesting? It shows headship in three different places. It shows that the headship of man is Christ. It shows that the headship of woman is the man. And it shows that the headship of Christ is God. So clearly we see headship cannot be a bad thing. It can't be a denigrating thing. It can't be a boorish thing or something that is used to lord over people and abuse them. Because Jesus Christ has a head himself, who is God the Father. And that's clearly not a bad thing. The church has a head, which is Jesus Christ. And that's clearly a good thing for us. Now, I want to look at how these differences in roles um, and authority existed before the fall. I want to see how they changed and were distorted after the fall. And then I want to look at how God's redemptive purpose is brought out in the New Testament in Jesus. And that's where we are in Colossians. First of all, different roles and authority before the fall. There's uh, six different things I want to mention here um, where we see differences in roles and authority. Number one, Adam was created first. We don't see this with any of the animals, right? All the animals, there's no difference between genders. They're created at the same time, for all we know. But God creates Adam first when he clearly could have created Adam and Eve first. And this is mentioned in some places in the New Testament. Okay, so this suggests a headship and greater level of leadership or authority. Number two, Eve was created as a helper for Adam. Okay, God, came, God creates all things and then he comes to Adam and he says, he said, everything is good except for one thing. What's that one thing, guys? He says, it's not good that men be alone. And all the men said, amen. It's not good. Men that are alone are dangerous. They blow stuff up. They get in trouble. They they get worse with age. Right? There's an old saying that, that men, single men are like milk. Over time, they spoil. And single women with age are like wine. They get better and better. But God says, hey, and everybody who disagrees with me is proving my point. Right? God says it's not good that man be alone, so he causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. Um, he causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep, probably in a chair with a lever or someplace like that. And Adam sleeps, and God removes from his side a rib. And then he forms woman. And I think this is a beautiful picture of where woman stands with the man. It's, it's, she's not way out front like feminine, feminism teaches. And, she's not, and the man's not way out front like chauvinism teaches. She's right by his side as a helper, as a friend, as, as a teammate, as a partner. Man and woman are equal, and they're different. They're side by side in creation. And so God creates Eve as a helper. Now this word is so unpopular, helper. That's how, how, un, how regressive, how... Oh, I just can't believe you'd even say that, Pastor Day. Helper. But God uses the same word of helper to describe himself. David says, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. It's not a word that we should use to denigrate anything. God has created a good helper for Adam, a good teammate, a good partner, a best friend 
is how it's supposed to be. Then number three, Adam names Eve. That suggests his authority um, and his delegated authority from God in that position in his marriage, okay? Number four, um, God names the human race man. Could have named it woman, but he decides to name it man, suggesting um, man's authority, his delegated leadership role, his delegated headship. And then God spoke to Adam first, number five, after the fall. Now this is interesting. Um, Eve is tempted by the serpent. The serpent comes to Eve, offers her the fruit. She takes it, takes a bite, and sins first. And then she gives it to her deadbeat husband, who is standing there like an idiot, doesn't do anything, and that's, by the way, guys, our default mode, just go passive on everything, and he eats it, okay? But Eve clearly sins first, and who does God go looking for in the garden? He doesn't say, Eve, what were you doing today? He doesn't say Adam and Eve. He goes, Adam, where are you? The first question ever asked in human history is, Adam, where are you? And that's the question I think God's asking a lot of us men here today. Where are you in your families? Where are you in your leadership? You don't have authority just because of your anatomy. You have authority because it's given to you by God. And you have a responsibility and you will give an account someday for how you lead your family. And you need to lead well and you need to love as Christ loved. And you need to lay down your lives for your wives and your children. Where are you? God's asking that question today, man. Where are you? He goes looking for Adam first. The big idea behind men is that we take responsibility for our families. Adam is held responsible for Eve and his sin. Now, certainly, Eve is held responsible for her sin as well. But in our families, men, we're going to be held responsible for what goes on. And it's, it's after the model of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus do for us? What does Jesus do for the church? He takes responsibility for what's not his. What's not his? Our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God and Christ. Jesus takes responsibility for what's not his, and we too, like Christ, have to take responsibility in our families, even for stuff that's not ours. We take responsibility like Jesus. Number six, Adam, not Eve, represented the human race. It's probably not something that Adam really wanted, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Romans chapter 5 talk about how through the first man, Adam, all became sinful. Then it goes on to say through the second man, Jesus, many can be made righteous. But Adam, not Eve, is mentioned in all of human history as the guy that lets sin into the world. He's the reason all of our children are sinners and lie to us now. He's the reason that everyone is born with this sinful nature. He bears the responsibility. Eve is nowhere mentioned. He has to bear the responsibility because he was given the God-given delegated authority. Now, after the, after the fall, the roles are not introduced, but they're changed. A lot of people say, well, the roles are just a product of sin. They're just evil. They're just a product of the fall. But I wanted to show you why they existed before the fall, because um, they were created good. But then after the fall, there's this distortion that happens. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Now, he's just cursing everybody. After God is cursing the, the serpent and the man and the woman, says the man, he's going to make his work hard, and a lot of us guys, we know that. You just keep working, and you never get ahead. It's part of the fall. Sometimes your job just stinks. Um, then to the woman, he says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. And all of you women who have children, you know that that came true. Um, even with epidurals, that is true. I've been in a couple of deliveries now, and I, I want no part of your curse. That's really, really awful stuff. 
Uh, and then he says, your desire will be for your husband. Now, Susan T. Foe, she, she uh, defines this word desire. She's, she interprets this word desire as desire to conquer. That you'll have this desire to conquer your husband and, and, and rule over him, and then he will rule over you. And that word rule doesn't, is not used in the New Testament. Um, that word rule there suggests this, this um, monarchy kind of rule, this, this kind of overpowering, kind of heavy-handed kind of rule. Not the teamwork kind of, of authority that we see in the New Testament. And so God's introducing this conflict between men and women, that women would want to rebel against the delegated authority of their husbands, and that husbands would rule over their wives in an ungodly, unchristlike way. And that's what we see happen. And so that's where all the horror stories come from. That's why these passages are so unpopular, because you hear about a guy that says, you need to submit to me, honey, and then he beats her. He uses God-given authority in his family to do the exact thing that God has given it for to prevent. He abuses her. He belittles her. And I would hate to be that man on Judgment Day, because God's given authority for the protection of those underneath it, in government, in the church, and in marriage, and families. So we see the distortion of the role in the fall. And then we come to the redemption in Christ as he affirms the creation order in the New Testament. Places like Colossians 3.18, Ephesians 5.22, Titus 2.5, 1 Peter 3. It's in Timothy, it's all over in the New Testament. Talking about how women and men are created equal in God's image, but also they have differences in roles and delegated authority. It doesn't make either one better or worse, it just means that they're different. And that God did that for a reason. Now... I want to talk about submission and a few misconceptions, because I think there are many. Um, so let's begin with a definition. The Greek word there for submit in Colossians is hupotasso. All right? Hupotasso is a military term to arrange troops under the division of a commander or leader. The, the non-military term, though, means this, a voluntary attitude of giving in, of cooperating, or of sharing a burden. It's this voluntary thing where the wife, voluntary of her own volition, the husband cannot make her submit. This is something she does out of obedience to God and out of love for her husband. Just like she can't make the husband love her. It's a heart thing. It's totally a heart thing. It's not an action thing. You can make a woman cower, but she's not submissive. She's just afraid of you. You can abuse a woman into obedience, but that's not submission. Submission is a heart mode where she's agreeable, where she's toward, where she's respectful towards her husband. And the husband loves and, and he cherishes and he protects and he guides and he comforts and he looks after his family and his wife as Christ looks after the church. Where do we find abuse in that? Jesus is not a bully to the church. He loves her, cherishes her, and gives his life for her. I don't know where we find all these crazy ideas, but this got distorted and we have to make a way for this to be right again. Let's look at some misconceptions about submission. Number one, submission is universal. This applies to all women and all men. Women just need to submit to men. That's not true. This is said to Christian women in their marriages to Christian men. Okay, It doesn't apply everywhere. Number two, submission is gender exclusive. It's just for women. We've already seen this in the scriptures. Men also have a job to submit. And their submission is to Christ. And so everything they do in their family, they say, Jesus, help me to lead. Help me to love. Help me to be self-sacrificing. Help me to give up my own desires. Help me to die to myself. So both people are both submitting. Number three, submission is generic. Every woman submits to every man. Oh, goodness, no. I would never, ever tell Liv or Jada, uh, sweetheart, what you need to do is just submit to men. 
Oh, can you imagine that? That would be horrible. Wouldn't that be terrible with all the jerks that are out there? I would never tell them that. Just submit to men. This, that's why it says submit to your husband. This is the man that you've covenanted with, to, who was covenanted with you to love, honor, and cherish. This is very specific. This is not you just submit to men. Please, don't misunderstand it. Number four, submission is a right. A husband has the right to demand his wife's submission. As I've said already, he has no more right to demand submission from his wife than his wife has the right to demand that he love her. Okay? Those are not things that you can make demands on. Those are hard issues. All right? And oftentimes we see husbands getting so focused on making their wives submit when that's not something they have the power to do. So you ought to focus, husbands, on what you are commanded to do, which is to love your wives as Christ loved the church and give up your life for her. Lay your life down for her. And wives, you, out of obedience to God, submit to your husband. It's nothing, it's nothing to do with what your husband says or forces you to do. It's every bit about your heart. Are you going to be agreeable towards him? Are you going to look to his leadership? Are you going to respect him? Okay? Are you going to come under his leadership and guidance and protection? Number five, submission is indiscriminate. It's just mindlessness. You just do whatever he says, no matter what it is. I have to do it because I have to be a submissive wife. This is ridiculous. Part of your job as a woman, as a teammate, as a best friend, is to reveal your husband's sin. How are you supposed to do that if you never disagree with him? Or if you never lovingly and respectfully bring something to him and say, Hey, honey, um, you need to see this. That's part about being a great helper, about being a great best friend, an equal, co-heirs with Christ. You need to say, sweetheart, I love you, I respect you, but you blew it. <laughs> Many of you wives are able to do that. You've got to be able to do that. You've got to be able to lovingly, in a respectful way, take your sin to your husband. Jenny's great at that. Okay? She is able to show me my sin in a loving way. And we have to be able to do the same, husbands. So first and foremost, we submit to Christ. And if he asks you to do something that's sinful or that's against your conscience, you just say, no, I submit to Christ first in a loving way in a respectful way, you say, that goes against my conscience. I, I don't feel right about that. Okay? So it's not mindlessness. Number six, submission precludes mutuality and creates lopsided one-way relationships. It does not. If we look at Jesus in the church, is that relationship lopsided? No. If we look at Jesus to God the Father and the Holy Spirit, is that, way, is that relationship any way lopsided because of submission and authority differences? No. The husband and wife are equals. They are, there's no difference in importance or significance or value, but they come together and the husband says, look, honey, God's given me delegated authority. He's holding me responsible. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to lead, but I need your help. I need you to give me input. I'm going to take your advice. I want you to talk to me. It's kind of like driving a car. The husband's in the driver's seat, but his wife is right there next to him, and the family's in the back, and the kids are there, and they're, they're going down the same path, on one, the same mission, the same vision, for their lives and their families. The husband's ultimately held responsible by God, but he's using his best asset, which is his wife. And most oftentimes, our, God can speak to us through our wives. She's got great wisdom, and so we're just foolish if we don't listen to her. I can tell you, we wouldn't be in the adoption process if it was for me. God spoke to my wife first. And actually, at this adoption meeting we went to this past week, they had a contest. They said, okay, how many of you wives, how long did it take your husband to say yes to adoption? So I felt better because I wasn't the only one. Um, but one guy, it was 10 years. <laughs> it took his wife lovingly bringing it to him. Honey, I think we need to care about these orphans. They need a place. And God was sensitive, or her heart was sensitive to God in this area of adoption. 
and she brought it to her husband first. We do well, husbands, if we listen to our wives. We pay attention to what's on their hearts. She's a teammate. She's a best friend. Right? It's not some, she's not someone to lord over. She's, she's lovingly making a choice to go with your leadership. To say, this is my advice. I'm going to go with what you decide. Right? The husband, at the end of the day, has the final say. He's going to be held responsible. But he listens to his wife because she's got good wisdom. And then lastly, number seven, this is my favorite, to debunk. Submission promotes abuse. It's just ridiculous. This is the exact thing that, that authority is there to prevent. To prevent the abuse of women, to prevent the neglect of women, the harsh treatment of women. Godly authority is given in the church, in, in government. God puts all authority in place, as it says in Romans 13, to protect for the good of those people under it. And when people use that authority to abuse those people put underneath their authority, they're going to have to stand before God. And I would not want to do that. One of my favorite uh, sayings is from the Manual on Church Discipline in the Apostolic Constitutions. This comes from the second century. Listen to what uh, the church did with men who were beating their wives. Now, I don't believe there are any men like that in here. But this is what it says. You're to do. If there is a man in the church who is beating his wife, the pastor is to take two stout elders and visit the home. And this is why Pastor Bill and I are relentless in our bodybuilding. <laughs> All right? Because we know that there may come a day where one of you guys gets a bright idea to beat his wife into submission instead of loving her. And we will come with the stoutest of elders that we have and put you back in your place in the most manly way we know how. So you can just imagine who, which elders that will be. All right? Let's move on. Enough with the misconceptions. Ladies, how are you doing with this? I know it's not easy. I know we're sinful. I know we're jerks sometimes. I know we don't do this thing about loving you as Christ perfectly. We never will. But guys, this is our call. To love our wives as Christ loved the church. To endeavor for this till our last breath. And ladies, unfortunately, I know it's, it's difficult to submit to a sinner. But this is what God has called you to do as your service towards him, not even necessarily towards your husband. Now, let's look at men. I know, guys, I've been talking to you as well here, but let's look at specifically your command. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, as we learned in the discipleship class, we only have one word for love. And it goes with everything. We love um, Home Depot, and we love NASCAR, and we love chicken wings and fighting, and we love uh, baseball and basketball and football and the Olympics, and we love ESPN, and we love uh, hamburgers, and we love grilling. We love a lot of things as men, right? But how are we supposed to love our wives? What category of love does that fit in? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 33 tells us that we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Gave himself up for her. It's a tall order. The husband certainly has the most difficult command here, or the most uncompletable command. I should put it that way. That the wife can probably do a much better job of submitting to her husband, even though he is a sinner. But the husband will never live up to the love that Christ had for the church. It's a command we'll never completely fulfill. But we're supposed to endeavor for it all our lives. And this passage says, Husbands, love your wives. It literally means go on loving her. And this is a problem for us because we are built with a wooing gene, right? Really good at getting a girl to like us. 
So we go from wearing our stained pants and our ugly t-shirts to designer jeans and khaki jackets and we start putting product in our hair and we start um, saying things that we would never ever say ever and we start writing poetry and, and things like that and we start doing things that are just really out of character and we become these really romantic people and, and she's just swept off her feet and finally she's blinded enough that she agrees to marry you. And you get married, and then something happens. You move in, and you have no idea what to do. Now what do I do? I got her. I got her. So now how do I live with this woman? And Paul literally says here, go on loving your wives. And husbands, how are you doing with that? Did you just give up once you got her? Did you just say, well, now that I got her, I can camp out in the basement and watch Sports Center? Once you, once you got her, did you keep on loving her? Did you keep on dating her? Did you keep on pursuing her? To keep on cherishing her and valuing her and building up her beauty, talking Proverbs 31 stuff to her, how she's more precious than rubies. What's the last time you said to your wife, you're more precious than rubies? Man, I'm so lucky to have you. I'm so blessed to have you. That's what we're supposed to do. Go on loving your wives. And then he says, don't be harsh with her. It literally means don't become bitter with her. And this is a specific temptation for us guys because... Um, and this is a little bit of a stereotype, I know. Maybe your marriage is flip-flop, and that's cool. Don't freak out. But um, we have little boxes in our brains, um, and so a lot of times we'll just compartmentalize stuff. And women, they want to keep the relationship up to date on a daily basis, so they'll voice, they'll register their complaints very easily. I mean, you guys say amen, right? That's not the towel you use for that, honey. Oh, that towel is for decoration. Well, where's the towel that I use for, washing my, for drying my hands? You know, and they just keep things up to date. They, they don't let us do things that nag them. Please, put the seat down. Put the seat up. Don't, you know, don't do that. Honey, don't do this. You need to vacuum this way. Rub the, scrub the floor with this product. Don't use just water. And they keep things up to date because they want to keep intimacy in the marriage. Right? Now, what we do is we just let a lot of things go. And because we're like, ah, I want to be a good loving husband. A lot of times we do it good-naturedly, saying, I want to be like Christ. I don't want to nitpick. We're not a big fan of nagging. You ladies should know that by now. And so we try not to nag ourselves. But what we end up doing is we store a bunch of stuff in a little box called bitterness. Or maybe it's called, my wife drives me crazy. Right? And over time, if, you don't, if you're not willing to process through that box and say, some of these things, not, not, you don't have to bring up everything to her, but if you're not willing to be open with your wife and say, honey, some of these things just bother me. And, and I did this for a long time. I just stored up things. And then finally when I was like, honey, I, I need to talk to you about some things. She received it so well. And she's like, you know what? It's hard. I know I need to change. But um, I'm really glad you were open and you shared your heart with me. I think this is what it means. Bitterness happens when we store up toxic stuff inside of us. Stuff that's frustrating. Stuff that we feel disrespected. And if you're not willing to be vulnerable and say, honey, I need to talk to you. It's going to put distance in your relationship. You're going to become bitter over time. And you meet husbands that when they talk about their wives, it just sounds like bitterness. It sounds like there's stuff there that can't be talked about. And so wives, be agreeable when this comes up. And husbands, do it in a loving way. Don't just blow up one day and dump the whole box out on her. But just, you know, choose some things very carefully, honey. When you do this, this, this bothers me. And likewise, wives, if you struggle with bringing up your, sin, your husband's sin to him, you need to confront him. That's one of the best things that we can do with each other is help each other become more like Christ by confronting each other on our sin. Don't become bitter, guys. Then he gets to children. Children, obey your parents in everything. Listen up, kids, teenagers. For this pleases the Lord. You have one big command in all of Scripture as long as you have believing parents, kids. 
and that is to obey them, to honor them. One big command. How easy could that be? And you say, you don't know my parents, Pastor Dave. You don't know my parents. And I get it. I'm not so old that I remember what it's like to, to want to disobey your parents. Um, but here's the thing. It's the one command with a promise. If you look at the fifth commandment, he says, honor your parents, um, because this is the one command with, with a promise, that it may go well with you. All right? I have a great story of this that I used to share when I talked to my teenagers at CORE about this. And one of my friends would get up, and one time he decided that this wasn't a command in the Bible that needed to be followed. He went out uh, after curfew. Uh, his parents had specifically told him not to. And he went out after curfew playing some hoops with the fellas. They might have been chasing girls, too. I don't know. But um, he, he's playing hoops, and, and a truck drives by, and they think, of course, it's a bunch of girls. But what happens is somebody gets out and starts shooting. They take off running. And he got shot with buckshot in the back of his legs and his butt. And he, and he was bleeding like crazy. Has to walk in and wake up his parents and go to the ER with a bloody behind. Now that's a bad day, right? You can get literally bit in the butt on this one, kids. If you decide not to obey your parents, you have no guarantees from Scripture about what's going to happen to you. No guarantees. If you decide I'm going to go out from underneath my parents' guidance, I want to mess around with my boyfriend or girlfriend, I want to drink, I want to do drugs, I want to, I want to try this, I want to do that. Even stuff like spending all your money and not saving. Going into debt. If you don't obey your parents, even sometimes if they're not Christian parents, they still have the wisdom of God for you in a lot of situations. You need to heed their advice. They're not stupid and they're not telling you things because they want to ruin all your fun. They're telling you things because they love you they want what's best for you. How are you doing with obeying your parents, kids? Obey your parents in the Lord. This pleases the Lord. Once again, Jesus is the center of this. Then he gets to fathers. He says, fathers, do not embitter your children. They'll become discouraged. It's interesting that he addresses fathers here because in this culture, women would have been the primary caretakers. But he addresses fathers. This shows again, fathers, you're in charge. Fathers, you have to lead your family. Fathers, you have delegated authority from God. You parent them. You look after them. You pray with them. You teach them about Jesus. Don't drop your kids off at church. That's my least favorite thing. Don't drop your wife and kids off at church and say, i got other things to do on Sunday. You lead them. You guide them. You parent them. It's just as much your responsibility as your wife's. And God's holding you responsible ultimately for what happens in your household. I was very encouraged this past uh, summer in North Dakota when we went to my in-law's house. I met a young lady who was 12 years old, um, friends with my in-laws, and she asked me a question that almost made me fall over. She said, uh, so, Pastor, so Dave, um, she knows I'm a pastor. She said, Who's, who are some of your favorite theologians? I was like, excuse me? I, I'm sorry, what did you say? And she said, you know, who are, the, who are some of the guys that you listen to? Some of the guys that you like their teaching? And she started rattling off all these guys that she listens to and she likes their, their doctrine. And I, I started talking about some of mine, and we had a great conversation. And she said, yeah, my dad, he teaches me theology. He teaches me doctrine. He teaches me the, he teaches me the catechism. And I was like, man, what a stud. You know? Sitting down with his 12-year-old daughter, and he's connecting with her, and he's saying, these doctrines are important, sweetie. You need to hold to these. These things are going to hold you on the bad days in life. You hold on to these things. All right? This is the truth. And when you run into stuff that's not like this, you need to run. Guiding her, leading her, a strong young woman. Men, this needs to be us. We've got to lead in this way. 40% of kids go to bed today without a daddy. It's a big problem in our culture. 
It's a really big problem. We need more fathers, more dads, more men to take responsibility. To stand up to the plate and take what God's given them to do. And he says, don't embitter them. I've listed seven ways. There's many more that we embitter our kids, dads. We often do this. And moms, too. Um, This applies to both of us, but he specifically mentions fathers here. Number one, be legalistic. Make up a whole bunch of rules that are impossible to keep. Most of them are not in the Bible, and most of them don't make sense. It's just frustrating and embittering for kids, right? They feel like everywhere they turn, there's another rule they're trying not to break, and you're always on them, and you're always hard on them. They just become discouraged. Number two, be a license-based parent. You just let them do whatever you want. I find this is most often in parents who are working too much. And so they come home, and the last thing they want to do is make rules and discipline. And so what they do is they just try to be their kid's buddy. Parents, you're not their buddy. That's not your role. I know you want to be close to them. I do too. But you are their parent. God's given you a bigger responsibility than just being their buddy. And if you let them do whatever they want, they will become embittered against you. I've talked to several young people in my youth ministry days, and they said, I need help praying, with bitter, praying against bitterness against my parents. Why? Well, they never made any rules or guidance for me, and it got me in a lot of trouble. It caused a lot of heartache in my life. You put too many fences around them, they might get better, but you put no fences around them, and they'll for sure get better too. Number three, never show affection. Dads, this is specifically uh, an area for us. I love the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 because the first thing the dad does, this dad is a picture of God, by the way, is he runs up to his grown son who has just ran away and blew all his money on prostitutes and wild living, and he kisses the guy. Grown men kissing each other. Right? That's the picture of God the Father with us. And guys, we need to be better at showing affection to our kids. We've got to show affection to them. That means even, even when you have grown kids, teenagers, you grab them from behind, even your boys, and you hug them and you give them a big kiss on the top of the head. And What they're going to say is, Dad, oh, stop that, knock that off. And what they mean is, Dad, I really like that. Keep that up. Okay? Keep that up. They love to feel your affection. They just don't want to look like a sissy. And our culture says, oh, men can't show any affection at all for kids, or they look like sissies. They're not tough. That's not what it means to be a man. We define what it means to be a man by the Bible. So you show affection. Number four, never give encouragement. I was listening to a guy this week who talked about how a lot of um, therapists and and psychologists will say that if you give criticism and encouragement in a one-to-one ratio to your kids, they will grow up hating themselves. If you give it in a one-to-one ratio, criticism sticks so much more than encouragement. You have to be like a four-to-one or a five-to-one ratio. You're constantly encouraging your kids. You're giving them some criticism, you bet. But if you're only giving one-to-one even... They're going to grow up and they're just going to think they can't do anything right. You've got to be encouraging them. You've got to be blessing them. You've got to say, hey, you're doing a great job. Hey, I'm proud of you. Hey, don't do this. But any, I love you. I, 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 I'm so pleased that you're my son or my daughter. Okay? Encourage them. They become embittered. They become discouraged. Number five, never show favoritism. This is one of the easiest paths to destroy your kids. You just say, why can't you be more like Billy? Why can't you be more like little Joy over there? And he never does that. Or you just show favoritism. You just, you just talk about your kids in that way. That Oh man, this kid's just perfect. And you just, you're just not quite cutting it. That's not the way to motivate them. It will make them discouraged and embittered. Number six, dad's over-discipline. We can fly off the handle and discipline in our anger instead of disciplining out of love and obedience to the scriptures. So you have to be careful that your punishment fits the crime. And I'm, I know that I'm guilty of that sometimes. Number seven, neglect discipline. This is the other extreme. We just never discipline. And the proverb says, he who neglects discipline hates his child. 
That's a strong phrase, but it's true. We're given the responsibility of disciplining our kids. Okay, let's come to the last part, and also a very controversial part in, in verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you, to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Okay. This is a passage that a lot of people read and they say, see, the Bible can't possibly be true. The Bible can't possibly be right because look, here, it condones slavery. Paul's saying here, look, um, slavery is fine. Slaves need to obey your masters. Number one, Paul's not saying that. Paul's not pro-slavery, but he's also not going on a campaign against slavery here. He's giving slaves and masters a radical command. However, I want to make a very clear distinction between first century slavery and what you're thinking of, which is 17th, 18th, 19th century slavery that is race-based, that is um, brought about by kidnapping, which the Bible clearly forbids in two places in the New Testament, and and is completely um, against the Bible in every other way in how slaves were treated. Okay, And Paul mentions how slave um, owners or uh, how masters are to treat their slaves. But this is from uh, Murray Harris, who's a historian. He talks about slavery in the first century. And I think this will put it in perspective to us before we dropkick the Bible and say it can't be true. In the first century, Harris says, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, by speech, or by clothing. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and held responsible professional positions. Some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service or by their 30s at the latest. Okay, this is first century slavery. They were not denied the right of public assembly and were not socially segregated, at least in the cities. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom. Their natural inferiority was not assumed. Okay, and this is also in a day before electricity, um, internal combustion engines, where they needed these kinds of people, working people, to do all the work today that machines do. Okay? So, um, Harris is just making the point that we have to, when, when we're reading the Bible, context is very important to understand what exactly is Paul talking about when he says slaves. We automatically go to the civil rights movement. You know, and we automatically think, how could he? Because that's clearly so against the Bible. And yes, some preachers in the civil rights movement in the South would preach that slavery is okay based on the Bible and totally misaligned God's word, totally uh, misused these texts. But Paul still even though he's not trying to go on some campaign against all slaves and slavery, still gives a very potent challenge here. First of all, he gives it to the slaves. To slaves, and and I'm going to plug in employees here. Employees, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. How many of you at your jobs, you're an employee, and you're on Facebook a lot? You're updating your Twitter status? Or you're, you're messing around on YouTube. There's dinking around. You're wasting the company time. You're being a bad employee and you're, and, and you're not representing or glorifying Christ in that. Some of you in here are going to need to repent. Maybe, first of all, to God, but also to your bosses and say, I haven't been a Christ-like employee and I plan on upping it. I plan on serving you as if I was serving Christ himself. It's a tall order for us, friends, but I've been guilty of that. I've worked bank jobs for employers that you're just like, hey, it's no big deal if I stick it to the man. You know, it's no big deal if I, if I just waste this, this time. It is a big deal. He says, look at this. Work at it, as it with all your heart as if working for the Lord, 
not for men. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. doesn't matter if you're making pizzas or delivering them. doesn't matter if you're working at a bank as a teller or if you're working as a, um, a vice president somewhere. You don't work for a man. You don't work for a company. You work for the Lord. And if your company is so ungodly that you can't stomach it, then you need to quit and get a company that's decent. All right? If it's so ungodly that you just can't possibly imagine it being like working for the Lord, then you probably shouldn't be there anyway. And then he gets to uh, the last part. It says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know also that you have a master in heaven. Doesn't this put it in perspective? Now, I imagine these verses were not preached in the civil rights movement. Provide your slaves with what's right and fair and remember that you have a master in heaven. It's pretty hard to treat your slaves the way that they were treated, remembering that you also have a master in heaven. God's saying here, bosses, you need to understand that you're not the boss, capital B. God is. And he's watching over how you lead your employees. Sometimes I go into businesses where there's Christian owners and the place is just flourishing. Place is just flourishing. One of them is Norbert Paints. I go in there and Jeannie's always happy. I could just spend an hour or two in Norbert Paints every week. Because there's Christian owners, there's Christian music playing, the employees are flourishing, they never say bad things about their bosses. They 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 have a good environment, their bosses care for them, at least I think so. They're loving, they're looking out for their needs, they want to make sure they're taken care of, they want to make sure they get a fair wage. If you're a boss in here, this is what you've got to do. Your employees should think it's the best thing in the world to work for a Christian owner. They should think, man, I'm the luckiest person in the world. I've got a Christian owner. And he, he leads and he loves and he cares for me like his Lord and Savior cares for him. He's underneath his Lord and Savior in such a way that it affects even my job. If you're a boss in here, you've got to think about that. I also know Christian bosses where their employees hate working for them. They hate it. They don't like it one bit. Because he's a hard-nosed and he's a tightwad. He's not generous. He's not kind. He's always watching over their shoulder. But you couldn't tell he's a Christian by how he leads and how he's a boss. And this is a shame. Everything we do, we do it to the glory of God. This is, this is the basis of this whole passage. The key ingredient here all over the place is Jesus. Wives, you submit to your husbands as Christ lovingly submits to the Father. Husbands, you love your wives like Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents. Become obedient kids like Jesus was an obedient son. As Philippians 2 says, he became obedient even to point of death, even death on a cross. That's how obedient Jesus was. Parents, love your children as your heavenly Father loves you. Employees, work for your bosses as if you were working for Christ himself, not for men. Employers, lead as servant leaders in Christ, treating your employees as you would want to be treated. The key ingredient in this whole passage, if we want to be new people, operating new lives under new power in a new home, is Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your instruction, your word. Even though it goes against the grain of our culture, even though it makes us bristle a bit because it feels a bit wrong to say some of these things. We believe that what your word has for us is the best. We believe that um, your design, when lived out, in Christ is the best for our families, for our workplaces, for our marriages. And so we come to you, Holy Spirit, for change today, again. We come to you asking, us, asking you to empower us, asking you to fill us, um, asking, us asking you to give us the ability to become a, a new kind of people, living out new lives in our homes. 
And so, in Jesus' name, we ask all this. Amen.